I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Andrew Solomon. Andrew is a writer, a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University Medical Center, a lecturer on politics, culture, and psychology, president of Penn American Center, and author of several books, including Noonday Demon, An Atlas of Depression, and Far and Away, Reporting from the Brink of Change, a collection of his travel writing for the New York Times. As with each of our guests, we'll ask him about books from different times in his life, the books that had the biggest influence on him in childhood, the books that were most formative for him as a writer, and the books that were central to his most recent writing. And along the way, we'll be asking him about his own latest book, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. Andrew Solomon, welcome to Kobo. What a pleasure to be here. Andrew, an idea that organizes and unifies this book is something that you introduce at the very beginning, the notion of vertical and horizontal identity. Can you open up that concept for us a bit? Yes. So uh, vertical identities are identities that people have in common with their parents. So your ethnicity, your nationality, um, usually your language, frequently your religion. And there are arguments to be made that those identities are sometimes very difficult ones, that for all that we would like to think it otherwise, it is still easier um, in much of the Western world to be white, to be male, to be Christian than it is to be, for example, black, Muslim, and female. But none of us have suggested that the correct solution to that problem is to do genetic research to ensure that um, all children are born male, or that the next generation of children born to black or Latino or um, Asian, uh, Asian American parents come out with blonde hair and blue eyes. We recognize that the problem is in the society, and we attempt to change the society. But then there are what I've called horizontal identities. Horizontal because you don't have them in common with your parents, and you learn, therefore, your sense of identity, not generationally within your own family, but from a peer group. So being gay, being deaf, being uh, a dwarf, having autism or Down syndrome or schizophrenia, having multiple severe disabilities. I looked at families of people um, who are prodigies, who are also quite overwhelming to their families, even if in a somewhat more positive way. I looked at families bringing up children conceived and raped, families of people who've committed crimes, and families of people who are transgender. And in looking at all of these situations, I discovered that while there is a very strong community of identity, most people are not aware of that when they're growing up in families with whom they don't have their essential defining characteristic in common. And they discover that community of identity in adolescence or thereafter when it often comes as a great liberation to them. And so they're horizontal identities because they are peer identities rather than hereditary ones. And this book for you began with an article that you wrote for the New York Times about the deaf community. Can you tell me a little bit about what that first story opened up for you about those notions of horizontal identity? 
I was rather surprised when my editors at the Times Magazine asked me to write an article about deaf culture, because I had mostly been doing international reporting. But my editor said to me, this is a foreign society within our own midst. And I went out into the deaf world. I went to deaf theater. I went to deaf clubs. I went to houses where the alarm clock um, uh, flashed a bright light instead of making a loud sound. And as I got deeper and deeper into the deaf world, I became convinced that deafness really was a community. It was a community united around the shared use of sign language. And not only that it was a community, but also that it was a very beautiful community. And I remember arriving at a meeting of the National Association of the Deaf and walking into a gigantic hotel ballroom, and there were thousands of conversations flying off the ends of everyone's hands. And I remember thinking, I wish I were deaf. Which is not to say that I wished I couldn't hear. My hearing is very useful to me, and I deploy it all the time. But I walked in, and I felt there was this culture, one that was clearly full of warmth and intimacy and great meaning for the people who were part of it. And in that room at that moment, I was the outsider, and I found what I was excluded from attractive and desirable. And, and in that experience, you found that there wasn't just a deaf community. There was, in fact, deaf culture that there is a framework of aesthetics, notions of beauty, um, notions of poetry that sit outside of, of the hearing world. And that, that, was, you know, that was both a revelation and, as you say, something that you then know is there but can't access and yearn for, which, which I felt very interesting. Well, that was exactly what the experience was. I mean, I went to all kinds of things at every level of the deaf culture. You know, I saw performances of deaf poetry that were unbelievably beautiful. I went to the graduation ceremony um, at, at and spent a great deal of time at Gallaudet, the deaf university in Washington, D.C. I even went to the Miss Deaf America contest in Nashville, um, where everyone complained about that slurry Southern signing. And as I immersed myself deeper and deeper in that world, I really came to see um, how, much of a, how much of a culture it was. And I understood why it was a cherished culture. And I thought, well, it's a minority culture, but so is Judaism a minority culture. So is, you know, all kinds of religious or ethnic or other kinds of cultures, minority cultures. Um, I mean, there are some challenges that deaf people face, and there's a requirement that there be translators available in hospitals and special programs and schools and so on. Of course, we now live in the era of the cochlear implant, so we live in a time when that signing culture is to some extent being undermined, though it still retains a lot of vitality. Um, but I, I love that culture, um, and I came to feel very at home in it with the deaf friends whom I became close to and who really introduced me to a world. And it was not only a world that I hadn't previously had much experience with myself, it was a world the very existence of which had been unknown to me. I hadn't known there was a deaf culture. I had always thought those poor people, they can't hear, what can we do for them? It had never occurred to me that it was a valued identity. And really the book altogether and this whole question of vertical and horizontal identity it's about the ease with which something passes from a status as illness to a status as identity. I mean, when I was born, homosexuality was considered an illness, a sin, and a crime. Um, and somehow the identity of gayness emerged from the illness of homosexuality. 
and the investigation at the heart of Far From the Tree was to understand how it could possibly be the case that uh, identities could emerge from illnesses, and if gayness could emerge from homosexuality, and if this rich deaf culture I was encountering could emerge from the disability of deafness, then what other conditions were there that had the possibility of emerging from, or at least sometimes emerging from, their definition as illness into a definition as identity? And one of the the critical points in that narrative that you establish at the very beginning, um, you reference cochlear implants and parents being able to decide to fix a deaf child. Um, and putting that in parallel to your own experience of growing up as a gay man, you know, what would happen if parents could fix a child who was gay? And the effect that that has both on the notion of difference and the idea of these these cultures that emerge up from horizontal identities and that was uh, that was an arresting moment for me as a, as I was starting the book and uh, and then put all of the subsequent chapters into perspective around that I think parents have two primary obligations there's an obligation to change your children you have to change your children. Not changing your children constitutes neglect. You have to give them an education. You have to instill some moral values. You have to try to teach them some manners. You have to change your children. And the other obligation is to accept your children for who they are and celebrate them and give them the feeling that who they are is exactly who you wanted and is exactly the most wonderful person in the world. And some things clearly need to be changed and some things clearly need to be celebrated or accepted and other things fall in a foggy middle. And my book was really about investigating that foggy middle and understanding how it came to be um, that parents were so confused about what to change and what not to change. So we have a moment when there are more changes available than ever before. Deaf children can get cochlear implants. Children with achondroplasia, the most common dwarfing condition, can get BMN-111, an experimental drug that blocks the action of the gene that causes achondroplasia. Um, uh, in the instance of many kinds of uh, differences and anomalies, blood tests that can occur earlier and earlier in pregnancy allow people to terminate pregnancies with children who have got those differences and whom they don't wish to raise for that reason. And I think that that's great scientific progress, but I think we also have had social progress in which people with differences are more readily accepted. And I champion the social progress and write about it a lot in the book. And I also believe in scientific progress, but I think they're often blind to each other and don't recognize each one the other one as they go forward. And I think that's a great tragedy. And I worry about the cultures um, and ways of life and understandings that we're losing. If my parents had had the means to give me a sort of small surgical procedure in infancy, something like the cochlear implant, that would have made me into a straight person, they would have done it by all means. I think ultimately they came to an acceptance of me for who I am, but it took a while for that to occur. And I think that if somebody were to develop a blood test through which it was possible to test for and determine whether people were gay um, before they were born, that the gay population would be decimated in seconds. I don't think we're anywhere near such a blood test. Um, I don't know that we ever will be, but I do think that uh, all of the cultures I'm looking at are fragile, and they're fragile in the face of social advancement. You draw on your own experiences of, uh, of gayness, of dyslexia, 
as you explore different kinds of, um, of horizontal identity, um, going back to, to your beginnings, you were an exceptional reader but had difficulty with writing. Can you talk a bit about, um, about books and words and their place in your life when you were growing up? Well, I was uh, verbally very advanced. Um, my mother always claimed that I started talking when I was about six months old, and I was physically very slow. Um, when I once asked my mother, what do you think was the great trauma of my childhood? She said, learning to walk. She said, there you were. She said, you were two years old, and you still couldn't really do it, and you struggled. You struggled all the way through uh, to be able to uh, deal with the physical world. So language was very important to me, and communicating was very important to me, and it was the basis for my interaction with everyone around me. But I had dyslexia, um, and I also had some other mild learning disabilities. And my mother, who had been a school teacher, recognized those challenges when I was very little. Um, and she helped me learn to read, and she sat with me patiently for hours and hours and hours and made me think that we were doing something really fun and helped me learn how to sound out words and how to read what I was uh, looking at. And then when it came time for my family to... Um, uh, apply for me to go to school. Um, they applied to 14 schools and I was turned down by all 14 schools on grounds that I would never learn to read or write. And I've had many problems in life and that is not one of them. <laughs> and, uh, I was finally accepted in second grade by a school where they agreed to take me because my father had been at law school with the headmistress's son and they took me even though I was never going to learn to read or write. So I now say to people who are going through all of those traumatic processes of having children assessed at an early age that the very definitive assessments you get may not turn out to be true. But language was where I lived, and it remained where I lived. And friends of the family are always saying, I remember when you were two years old and you said you were going to grow up and be a writer and write books. And look, here it is. Um, you are a grown-up, and you've done exactly what you said you were going to do. I always knew language was the only thing I had entirely on my side. And so when you were in those moments with your, with your mother, what were the books were you reading? Which were the ones that... Uh, that first pulled you in to, uh, to stories and writing? Well, the books that I read with my mother were often books that were designed to get you started on reading. And it was my father who read me stories every night before I went to bed. And those were sort of more um, fantastical. Um, they shifted over time. I mean, some of them were the very obvious ones. I loved Winnie the Pooh. We must have read the Winnie the Pooh stories 10,000 times. I still love them. I wanted my own children to love them, and they liked them fine, but they didn't respond to them in the way that I did. <laughs> we read Alice in Wonderland. We read the Rutabaga stories by Carl Sandburg, which I think are terribly underrated, but which are an incredibly beautiful and poetic group of stories with wild, eccentric use of language um, and very fantastic fabulous imaginings and someone once said to me when I said it was strange the rutabaga stories had never caught on in the way that the fantastical world of Alice in Wonderland had someone said yes but in Alice in Wonderland there's Alice and Alice is a perfectly ordinary person who's encountering all of these strange things and she gives you a way to process them and in the rutabaga stories you're just thrown in whole hog and there's nobody to guide you through <laughs> and that was true. exactly what I loved about them it was wonderful to be in that language when I was a little older I became 
became very obsessed with the work of E. Nesbitt, who was a Victorian novelist. Um, I'm pleased to say my children did like E. Nesbitt, though I, in rereading the E. Nesbitt stories, discovered that they're unbelievably racist and anti-Semitic and problematic in about 10,000 other ways that were perhaps typical of the period, but, um, but also wonderfully imaginative and full of magic. And then jumping forward, you have... Um, you have really two uh, biographies that sit next to each other. There's one as uh, as a researcher, as a lecturer, um, as um, a professor of psychology, and then there is um, Andrew Solomon as a as a traveler, as a journalist, as um, as someone who sort of builds up this um, this body of writing. How how have those two sides of you coexisted? That's a really interesting question. I mean, you mentioned in the introduction, very kindly, my book Far and Away, and it was very satisfying putting that book together uh, because it is really an account of the many places I've gone and the many experiences that I've had there. When I was little, I was quite a frightened child with very little sense of adventure. I wanted things to be safe and to be comfortable and to be at home and to be with my parents. And then at a certain point, I realized I was missing out on a lot of the world because I was afraid of it. And I made a sort of very determined choice at some point in um, late adolescence or early adulthood that I was going to have a life in which I engaged with the world and I was going to have a sense of um, adventure. So to some extent, there was just that personal transformation. But I also became really obsessed with questions of justice and equality and the way that they played out on an international stage. And so my first book was about a group of Soviet artists and the way their lives changed during Glasnost, a group of artists who had believed through the Soviet period that they lived in a regime that was trying um, to destroy truth itself and that they were the guardians of a truth that they would keep alive so that they could shout it from the rooftops when freedom came. And I was struck by their incredible moral purpose and by the power of their interactions with others. And I had the extraordinary experience with which I opened far and away of being with them during the putsch that brought an end to the Soviet Union when Gorbachev was kidnapped and when Boris Yeltsin first rode in on his tank. And I saw how these artists were determined to take the ideas that had been in their work and apply them not only to paintings and installations, but also to the way they lived their own daily lives. And I then really wanted to understand how do people who are stuck in circumstances of adversity manage to extract experiences of great dignity? And that became the theme of the international reporting, but is also the theme of Far From the Tree. It's the theme, in a way, of all of my work. How do people manage to become grateful for lives that you'd think they would have done anything to avoid? And so, from a career perspective, was your, was your journalism and your academic work coexisting? Were they happening at the same time? They were not only happening at the same time, they were creating one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, I reported from, I reported from Libya, I reported from Afghanistan, I reported from all of these places that were in turmoil. I reported on the emergence um, of a cultural life in South Africa during apartheid. I was thrown into all of those areas. And all of them made me think about how, um, uh, how extraordinary it was that people in such diverse contexts um, were leading lives in which they had so many of the same fundamental and underlying concerns. 
But those concerns were also the concerns that I then discovered when I went into communities in the United States. And the editor who said to me, the deaf culture is a foreign society in our own midst, was actually coming up with a great and important insight that meant an enormous amount uh, to me to discover. And so that was the that was the world that I uh, that I went into, and I mean I did some academic research. I completed a doctorate in psychology and so on, but I think most of it was humanist research, and it was about people, and it was about how uh, it was about how people found their their way, um, how people confronted with very difficult circumstances found found a way to have meaningful lives nonetheless. And, you know, when I was writing the first book, which was about a group of Soviet artists, my mother was dying of cancer. And I remember being struck by how my mother had a uh, wonderful uh, sense of her own vitality and her own life, even through a period when she was uh, when she was going through those difficulties and I saw parallels between her experience and the experience of the people I was writing about and indeed then wrote a novel that was partly based on my mother's illness and death and called into play I mean not repetitively and not in the same way but some of these themes of resilience. And so then in 2001 you write uh, The New Day Demon, an, an Atlas of Depression. Was that um, was that also pulling through that same theme, or was that stepping outside to explore a particular condition? Well, look, depression is a nasty experience. So it's not as though I was writing a book about depression to say to people, you know, this is really tremendously meaningful and everyone who's never had depression ought to go and have one. Um, what I was uh, doing when I wrote The Noonday Demon was trying to investigate the nature of depression and trying to break down the idea of depression as a modern Western middle-class illness by showing that it's existed across history, that it exists across cultures, and that it's existed um, uh, uh, everywhere in the class spectrum and that depression among the indigent is a serious and uh, very much neglected problem. Um, but I was also interested, as I wrote, in the fact that some people had what sounded, as they described it, like relatively minor depression, but were nonetheless able to have meaningful lives, at least in the interstices between their depressive episodes, while other people had what sounded, as they described it, like incredibly acute, um, uh, I mean, incredibly mild depression, but it nonetheless really seemed to destroy their lives. And... So I wanted to um, look at what the mechanism was that allowed people to do well. And what I found was that the people who wanted to wall off the experience of depression and say this horrible thing happened to me and now I'm never going to think about it again were the ones, ironically, who were in fact most vulnerable to having their lives destroyed by a recurrence of depression. Because when it occurred, it was once more the end of everything that was familiar to them and a launch into a strange and terrible place. And I found that the people who had, uh, uh, who had incorporated the narrative of having depression into their larger life narrative and who had said, I would certainly never have wanted it, but I learned some things from it, I grew from it, I came to a deeper understanding of humanity through it, whatever the language was they came up with, the people who said they had grown through the experience were the ones who, when it came again, would say, this is unwelcome and I wish it weren't happening. But nonetheless, it's part of my life, and I know I'll go through it, and I know I'll emerge having learned something else at the far end. And so I really wanted to investigate um, 
that sort of strength of character. And what in Far From the Tree, which flowed naturally from the Noonday Demon, I defined as the choice, the choice to find meaning in experiences that are desolate. I said, it's not just that some people happen to see the meaning, they have a sort of better seat in the stadium and other people happen not to. It's that you choose to seek for it, you choose to find it, and doing so determines the nature of your experience of all kinds of challenges. That that notion of of choice in the midst of experience and how you know, how you choose to engage with an experience is is an interesting one. You know, this the um, uh, far from the tree is both deeply researched, but also providing these vivid portraits of parents learning to live outside of their expectations, along with children who are just learning to live. Um, one of the things you touch on early is how much contradictory research there is on the experience of parenting a child with disabilities. And again, that it seems to break one way or the other. It is It draws couples closer together, or it causes them to be more likely to divorce. The can you talk a bit about that that split in expectations that seems to happen and also the split in research around it? Well, the research is very confused. I mean, there are very good studies, for example, that show that parents of children with disabilities are more likely to get divorced. There is very good research that shows that they are less likely to get divorced. And there is very good research that shows that they get divorced at about the same rate as everyone else. So you go off into the field and you start reading the research studies, and it would be convenient for my thesis to kind of cherry pick and decide, well, we'll just put in the, that group of statistics. But the reality is that people have found everything. And my conclusion was that having a child with a disability makes you both more and less likely to divorce, which is to say that it exaggerates what was already present in the marriage or partnership. And if it was a very strong marriage or partnership, it's likely to get stronger as you deal with this significant challenge. And if it was an already damaged and weak relationship, then it's likely to fall apart as you have the overwhelming stress of dealing with children with these significant differences. So that was really what I what I wanted to understand. There is so there is so much diffuse um, analysis, but this question of finding meaning, which I mentioned a minute ago, seemed very crucial. And one of the studies that was central to my thinking as I wrote Far From the Tree was one in which a group of women, I don't know why it's always the women, but it is always the women, but in this study it was a group of women who had just given birth to children with a variety of challenges and disabilities were asked, do you uh, expect to find meaning in this experience? And then the researchers went back 10 years later and they uh, looked at these families. And the families of the women who had anticipated finding meaning were doing better on every possible clinical measure than the families of children who had not anticipated finding meaning. So that finding meaning is not only a luxury for the mother, but will also to some degree determine the experience of the child. And I don't want to disparage mothers who don't find meaning and aren't able to do that. Different people have different capacities and it's not my role or place or wish to judge anyone. But darn, if you can find the meaning somehow, if you can invest the experiences you're having with value, then you'll be able to survive them. Whether that experience is living in apartheid South Africa or that experience is having a child with um, uh, uh, autism. Throughout the book, you explore deafness, dwarfism, downs, autism, mental health, but you 
also talk about prodigies um, and in a in a string of chapters that are about what we typically see as disabilities that one you know, that one stands out a bit as one of these things is not like the other how how is that experience of parenting and growing up as a prodigy similar to some of these other horizontal identities that we talk about the experience of having a child who is a prodigy is less sad than the experience of having children with some of the other challenges that i looked at but it's no easier um, you have been given a child you don't know how to bring up and you've been given a child who doesn't really have easy access to a peer group so in the same way that um, if you have a child with Down syndrome, you have to try to find other people with Down syndrome because how is your child going to make friends in the mainstream world? So if you have a child who is a prodigy, you really have to go out into uh, a world where your child doesn't make much sense because essentially your child is going to be spending time either with adults um, who aren't very interested in talking to a six-year-old or to other six-year-olds who don't have the slightest idea what your child is talking about. And there are a lot of questions about what you do with that kind of child and how much you try to normalize that kind of child that are exactly like the questions that get asked when you have a child who has dwarfism, for example. And so I found over and over again that parents would say, you know, on the one hand, I want to give my child access to a normal childhood because a normal childhood is a good way to form meaningful friendships. And on the other hand, I want my child to have... Um, the ability to develop this one talent that's the great and joyful thing or these several talents in some cases um, uh, that have given them a place in life and i remember interviewing a young man named mark Yu and his mother and i uh said to his uh to him and his mother i said isn't it important to you that mark have some kind of a normal childhood because at that point mark was six years old he was taking piano lessons three weeks out of every month in California and one week out of every month in China because his mother thought he could benefit from the two different techniques. He was preparing to take the SATs. He was studying astrophysics. I mean, he was having a life that was very different from that of most children his age. And Mark said to me, I have a normal life. Come up to my room and you'll see. It's kind of messy, but you can come up there anyway. And I went up and there was his room and it had Sesame Street videos and it had a remote control helicopter that his dad had sent to him. And then he said, now well, let's go back downstairs and I'll play the Chopin Fantasy Impromptu. And we went downstairs and he played that piece of music with such yearning and such romanticism and such exquisite beauty. And he finished playing it and his mother turned to me and said, you see, he's not a normal child. Why should he have a normal childhood? And I thought when she said it, I don't know that the choices she's made are the ones that I would make, but I recognize that they had a certain integrity and validity. And the question of how much do you make your child part of the mainstream and how much do you put your child in a community of other people who are like him, um, that's a question that haunts all of the conditions I looked at in the book. One of the identities that seems especially hard to look at and one that you know, as the as the chapter came up I braced myself for is the idea of a child born from rape can you talk about the experience of Marina James I really wanted to indicate that um, the 
experience of having a stigmatized identity could exist even in instances in which the child didn't know that the stigmatized identity existed, um, that it could exist even for children whose stigmatized identity was a terrible secret of their mother's um, and had nothing to do with their biological condition or with a sort of defined difference or disability. It had to do only with where they'd come from. And so I looked at children conceived in rape, and I looked at how parents managed, um, mothers particularly managed to bring up children who were so intimately associated with an enormously traumatic experience in their backgrounds. And as uh, I wrote about them, I was struck over and over again by the complexity of that experience. And the person who is most striking to me in some ways um, was someone who had been raped when she was um, 18, unlike most of the people in the chapter who were raped by people they knew or in circumstances in which they had felt invulnerable. She had a kind of traditional classic rape in which she was pulled into the backseat of a taxi in New York City and raped by two men and became pregnant um, at the age of, I think she was 16. And... Um, ended up having this child. And when I met her, it was many, many years afterwards. And we did a long interview. And at the end of it, I said, do you ever think about the men who raped you? And she said, yes, she said, I used to think about them with fear and terror and anger. She said, but now I think about them with pity. And I said, with pity, I said, do you pity them because they were the sort of unevolved people who would do something as terrible as what they did to you? And she said, well, there's that, she said, but I really think about them with pity because they have a beautiful daughter and two beautiful grandchildren, and they don't know that, and I do. So as it turns out, I'm the lucky one. And it seemed such an extraordinary point to have arrived at in contradiction to the trauma of what had happened to her. The struggles of those parents were in a way emblematized by a woman I interviewed in Rwanda. I went to Rwanda because there were so many women who were uh, raped as part of the, the strategy of the genocide in Rwanda. And they were having very, very difficult lives um, and were not well accepted by the society they were in and were seen as traitors to um, the Tutsi race and so on and so forth. And there was one ravishingly beautiful woman whom I interviewed who I think because she was so beautiful had managed to remarry as many of these women were not able to do. And uh, I said to her when I was interviewing her at the end of the interview, do you have any questions for me? Which is something that I always ask people at the end of an interview. And I had, you know, the ordinary run of responses was, well, um, uh, how long are you staying in Rwanda? Do you think you'll publish this in French? Are you going to use my real name? And this woman looked at me and she said, well, you're in this field of psychology, right? And I said, yes. And she said, can you tell me how to love my daughter more? She said, because I want to love her so much. But when I look at her, it gets in the way uh, what happened to me. And I don't think I do a very good job of it. And I was so taken aback that I just stared at her blankly. And she said, can you tell me how to love my daughter more? And it was only long afterward, um, uh, when I was away from that situation, that I recognized how much love there was in that question itself. Andrew Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Andrew Sullivan's books, Far From the Tree, The New Day Demon, and Far Away, are all available at www.cobo.com.
That's it for this episode of Kobo in Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.